This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This episode contains discussions around suicide, racism and toxic relationships, which some listeners may find triggering. Listener discretion is advised. This week, all I've done is tweet, watch Love Island and get blown away by a storm called Brandon. Who the hell names these storms? That's like calling a storm Dave or Steve. It's too casual. Talking of the weather, Winter Love Island started last week. But was I the only one expecting it to be shot in a snowy winter resort? I thought the contestants would be out there in jacuzzis, making snow angels. Instead, they've been flown to beautifully sunny South Africa. And now all I want to do is get on a plane to somewhere hot. My relationship with ITV Hub is on its last legs. The connection keeps cutting out at the most vital moments and... Wait, maybe it's Brendan affecting the airwaves. To those of you doing Veganuary, Colgate has just launched a vegan toothpaste, which makes me think, what was in it before? You know who else is doing Veganuary right now? Deborah Meaden. Famously one of the most brutal dragons on Dragon's Den. I recently found her Twitter page and I can't get over how woke she is. She uses her platform to promote ethical consumerism, is very anti-Brexit because she's worried about British businesses, and is an all-round humanitarian. I can't believe we slept on her. Asda is also trying to do its bit for the planet. It's currently trialling refillable food stations in one of their shops. You can go with your own containers and fill them up with rice, pasta, Kellogg cereals, and even PG tips. I'm personally waiting for when they start doing refillable toffee popcorn. Also this week, Sandy from The Great British Bake Off announced she was leaving the show, but I didn't realise anyone still watched it. Now people are wondering who will replace her. This is your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to our show and a massive thanks to all the listeners you have so far. In today's episode, we will be discussing Boris Johnson's first interview of the year, Britain realising racism exists, and the return of Love Island. I'm joined by culture writer Shantae Joseph and political journalist Marie Leconte. Our first story is Boris's first interview that he's done on the BBC this week. He's previously been accused of being a submarine PM and was criticised for not returning from his holiday when the Iranian major Soleimani was killed in an airstrike. Now, he's resurfaced and has laid out his government policy and spoken a lot about Brexit, Iran, Big Ben, his social care plan and Flybe. Shante, what did you make of this interview? Do you believe anything he says? I don't know if it's whether I believe it or not. I Maybe it's that I don't necessarily believe in his ability to be a good prime minister who will serve particularly those who are poor, those who are working class, those who are black and brown. I am like quite underwhelmed by him. I know he's like, you know, Boris, this great guy, super charismatic, like people love him. But I think as a leader, there's something about him that feels a bit like feckless and there's something about him that feels a bit like untrustworthy. And I have no doubt that he'll deliver on what he says he wants to deliver. But will that be in the best interest of like the communities that like I serve and the communities that I belong to? I'm not too sure. Marie, how much of what he said on his interview sounded promising to you? Do you think 
any of it is actually doable. I think why we've not heard too much uh, from Boris recently is that he's not really had his big uh, ministerial reshuffle yet. So, you know, that was kind of announced quite early on of saying, you know, we're going to get Brexit out of the way first and then we'll get basically an entirely new cabinet, an entirely new government. And that's kind of when we're going to get things done. So in that respect, I think that with Boris Johnson, we kind of saw it as London mayor as well and as um, foreign secretary, etc. There can often be a gap between what he says and what he does. And actually looking at his actions normally is a better sort of indicator of what, you know, what is actually going to happen. So I do think that, you know, obviously he's, he's talked big. I find it hard uh, to say whether he's going to do all the big things that he's promised he has. However, I think the Tories are extremely aware of the fact that they've won so many seats, you know, in places where they'd never won before, like, you know, sort of like kind of seats that had been Labour since the dawn of time. Uh, they want to hold on to those seats. So I do think that actually their stuff, you know, especially in terms of NHS spending, I think local transport as well, etc., they will actually do work on because they don't want to lose all those seats again in five years or whenever the next election is. He said that it's epically likely that we will have these amazing trade deals by the end of the transition period. Do you see that happening? And who are we going to have these amazing trade deals with? Trade is not necessarily like my area of expertise, but if you talk to literally anyone who works around trade, they're like, there is not one who knows the EU quite well. They're like, you know, one year is not enough time. Like, it is not enough time to get anything but the sort of like bearer's bones of like, um, of, of you know, deal with the EU. So, in that respect, no, I don't think that's really going to happen. And we may end up having to have a delay, but equally, Boris Johnson as PM did manage to get away with having a delay to Brexit and survived it uh, because I do think that Brexiteers actually trust him. So it might well be the case that actually we'll have a delay on kind of, you know, the end of that transition period um, and, and you know, as a result kind of get more done before, the, before Britain leaves the EU. So some people in this country want Big Ben to chime on the day that we leave the European Union. Now, that single bong is going to cost us half a million pounds because currently the building is in renovation and the clapper has been taken away. Boris seems quite happy to make it happen. He's not going to be using any taxpayers' money. He wants it to be crowdfunded. And I think part of that money has already been raised. Now, Shante, what do you make of these latest developments? What do you think of the Big Ben bong situation? I honestly feel like, I know some people who are like royalists and stuff like that and all about tradition and stuff are like quite angry about this. They're like, you know, you don't ring Big Ben for things like this. It's about like royal weddings and royal babies and all that kind of jazz. So we shouldn't be doing it about an issue like Brexit or whatever. And I personally like... I don't care. Like, if this is if this is taxpayers' money, then I will be at number 10 protesting every single day. But if these rich people who have nothing better to do other than give their money to ring a bell want to do that, then honestly, good for you. Like, I hope you get so much joy out of it and I hope it brings you the peace that you are so desperately searching for because I have no idea, like, why you are so interested, <laughs> vested in this bell. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But if that's what they want to do, then, like, I'm, you know, I'm there for it. I'm, I'm, I'm here for them to raise money for that. As long as none of my coins are going to that, then I really don't mind. Marie, will you be putting some money into the fund? <laughs> I was going to say, I, I sort of have like two answers to that. The first one is that you know, and I've tweeted about this. I'm very serious. Um, if anyone would like to give me fifty thousand pounds, which is ten times less, I will go up the tower <laughs> with a wooden spoon and just bang it myself. Um, but no, but I, I think it's actually been weirdly interesting in that. 
I think it's like it is the fact that for the past three and a half years the country has basically been at war over Brexit and each side has had to like on whatever happened, you just had to like pick a side, get down in the trenches and start shooting. And I think that that that, that bonging is kind of a case of that of like people need to get used to the fact that we're kind of moving on from that era of British politics. And, you know, and they just picked a thing and they're like, fine, we're just going to feel extremely strongly about this because we're so used now to feeling extremely strongly about everything. You know, fine, if that's what you want to do, if that's how you want to spend your money, just fine. And also I feel like if Brexit had been cancelled some insufferable Remainers would have done something super cringe to celebrate as well. So it's like, you know what, fine, fine, Enjoy whatever. Enjoy your party. Yeah. I don't know, people are so, even when it came to like the passports, like should the new passports be blue or whatever, like people obsess over these really weird things. And I don't know if it's them just like manifesting their like anxieties because of all of this like political turmoil and they, they just need something to believe in, something that they can do and they can have control over. But I just, I find it so bizarre. But like, yeah, give, give the people their bell. Boris seemed very evasive about his social care plan he spoke so greatly about last year, but it hasn't been published. In the interview, he said it will be published sometime during this government, which can mean any time from now up until another five years. So what kind of policies can we expect from the social care plan? I'm not entirely sure. Like, what I will say is that the problem with social care specifically is that, broadly speaking, everyone agrees that there needs to be a social care plan, but no one can actually agree on something that makes sense. And, you know, and then I feel like a lot of people are not really willing to pay or to, you know, to put sort of any money towards it. And I think we kind of saw that in 2017. I think that's why especially the Conservative Party is really worried about anything involving social care, because it's kind of widely um, agreed now that what tanked, like what, what was the beginning of the end for Theresa May's campaign in the general election in 2017 was the social care plan, the so-called dementia tax. Despite it, I think, being a slightly reasonable plan of effectively saying, you know, if you're very old and you need a lot of care and you have a ton of money, then please spend some of that money. But I think that's probably partly why he's being evasive, because actually it's really hard to find a plan that does not involve basically taxing people more or getting, you know, money out of people. That being said, Matt Hancock has now been the health secretary for a very long time and presumably the reason why Boris sort of like kept him on in the cabinet was so you know he could kind of like keep working on that. Um, and yet, yeah, we, we've not really heard anything. So again, I think it's just have to wait until the reshuffle. I think that their priority for, you know, for the rest of this month is Brexit. After that, we will probably start seeing stuff happen. But until then, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting anything sort of like exciting to appear really. I'm curious to see like how much of it is a like not stealing, but like some of it is like pinched from like the Labour manifesto. Because even the thing about broadband and there's a few things that they've announced. And I'm like, wait, when Labour said this like two days ago, all of you man were screaming on the Today programme. But now you're doing the same policies. Like, I'm interested to see what happened. And I guess like when he gave his like speech and he was talking about, you know, this is like one nation conservatism again and we're all for everyone. And they've won all these like seats with with loads of like working class people. So like, I'm, I'm curious. I'm not saying it's going to be like revolutionary, but like I'm quite curious to see what sort of policies they roll out for social care. Regional airline Flybe is in financial turmoil. It's now been reported that the government has agreed to do a rescue package consisting of deferring some of Flybe's air passenger duty payments. Boris said in the interview it's not for government to step in and save companies that simply run into trouble. But he also mentioned the importance of regional connectivity. There's been some backlash against his decision especially from rivals like EasyJet and Ryanair, who say taxpayer funds should not be used to save Flybe. Shante, do you think that's a good point, considering that Flybe has some wealthy backers? 
if I'm like, no, like the government shouldn't support it. Like, you know, if like this is capitalism, baby, you win some, you lose some, whatever, whatever. There are like 2000 people who are employed by that company who may have their like, it may lose their job. Then on top of that, you do have companies like Virgin who have the money to 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 like help Flybe, bail Flybe out, do a restructure, whatever you have to do to make things work. And they're not doing it. And they know that if they don't do it, they can rely on the government to basically sort them out, which they are essentially doing now. I have like mixed feelings about it. I don't want people to lose their jobs, but I also don't want it to become a thing where the government will abandon things like social care and, and not help those in need, but will like bail out big companies that actually have the resources to sort themselves out. And also there's been some conversation about the environment and whether we should be flying regionally. We keep talking about climate change, the climate crisis. It's probably one of the biggest topics we had last year, and I think it's still going to be a massive thing this year. So talking about that and then at the same time saying, hey, but, you know, why not just have people fly across the UK several times a week? Um, you know, at the same time that linking one to the other is, is quite interesting. It's quite an interesting approach. Also, the UK is not that big. Exactly. It's yeah. so small. What right? are you doing? You can literally walk to Cornwall. Okay, no, you can't yet. But still, like, it's just so crazy that people think like that is an acceptable thing to do. And the money that you're spending, like helping this company stay afloat, you can literally in- invest in other transport links, which is a huge issue anyway for people who live in rural areas. Like it really doesn't make any sense. And it's so wasteful as well. Mm. But trains, you yeah, know, I can completely agree and I think part of the reason why people fly as well is because the trains are so bad in this country like I'm French I grew up in France like and we know don't get me wrong France is not perfect but we have high-speed trains because we're a normal country in the 21st (laughs) century And and, and it's so bonkers to me that you know here trains are so expensive and also so slow and also overcrowded like it's not even they don't even win on one thing here <laughs> um so, so yeah no i agree i think you know if we're going to be talking about transport in general i think it's just a case of yeah if you're going to spend money somewhere just please like, build better trains boris carefully avoided any questions on whether the press had any colonial undertones in the way that it's been covering stories to do with harry and Meghan. The conversation about Mexit from last week has now spilled out into this wider conversation about racism in britain Alexander Leon on Twitter said, Extraordinary that it has become normal to invite a minority on morning TV to explain and then subsequently defend their experience of suffering to people who actively perpetrate it. This is an approach literally designed to trivialise suffering and we've normalised it. All of this week, we have seen countless interviews on TV, on radio and panels essentially discussing whether racism exists in Britain. And it's been really painful and really uncomfortable to hear some people's views because essentially you'll have a panel of four people and one of them will be a person of colour and they'll be saying, look, this is my experience. We've been saying this for years. Britain is racist and this is why. And then you have three other people telling them, no, you're wrong. It's a coincidence. And just completely ignoring their lived experiences. So there's been a big debate about how the media is handling debates about racism and whether people of colour should just essentially stop going on these shows because it's just not worth their time. It's emotional labour. Should we be debating this? No. (laughs) Yeah, this feels like a trick question. (laughs) I'm so confused. No, I don't... I think it's, it's tiring. As someone who gets called, like... 7am crazy times in the morning and the evening to go on the news that same day in 10 minutes from that phone call to just like discuss my humanity and and discuss whether or not these things exist it's like it's really tiring and it's boring now and as much as I'm angry at 
the channels and as much as I'm tired of the producers calling me up, it also relies on black people to stop going on these shows. When you get the invite, decline it. And one thing we've been seeing a lot is like when these TV shows like email, hey, do you want to come on the show and, and debate whether this thing is racist? People will write up quite, quite extensive emails explaining why they're not going to uh, go on the show, take a screenshot, put it on Twitter. And a, a lot of people have been just using those same messages because collectively, if we don't stop entertaining this stuff, it's going to keep happening. I know some people feel like you should do it because it's about educating people and it's about, you know, getting on there and like arguing your point and stuff. But they don't want to hear it. People love the um, the theatre of it all. Do you know what I mean? Like people love seeing Piers Morgan's get really riled up, like foam at the mouth, shouting, screaming at people. It's it's all a big show to them, and it really does trivialize something that is really serious, like racism. And so I just I don't see the point in it anymore. Like if you want to have a space for a detailed discussion, there are loads of places where you could do that, where you don't kind of feel like your your identity is under attack or that you're alive. Um, and I just don't think TV debates are the best place to do it, basically. I completely agree with that. And I think there's several other issues as well that are kind of linked to it. One of them is that actually, and it's immensely frustrating to see that clearly all these people of colour sort of invited to discuss racism are never invited to talk about anything else. So it's the case of, you know, you're not a professional, you're not a professional commentator. We don't see you as such. We only care about you when we want to talk about your identity. When so many of these people are obviously sort of like, you know, really bright and have topics of expertise besides, you know, kind of their own personal identity. And I think that actually you'd find there'd be a lot more good faith from people of colour if they were invited on more shows to discuss more issues. And then once in a while be like, by the way, you know, we're also talking about this. Um, But then I think it's kind of the wider problem of everything must be turned into a debate. So I seem to remember during the Me Too scandal, there were so many sort of like panels that were effectively, you know, a woman who's experienced sexual assault or rape. Um, and then on the other side, some man who's like, eh, Me Too's just the end of flirting. You know, and it's like, you know, do we need to turn absolutely every single issue into a debate? This format clearly keeps being used again and again. And I do think that's what a lot of people want to see, which is intensely depressing. Um, but but yeah, no, I, I don't understand why nuanced discussions can be uh, can at least become the norm. There was a video of Philip Schofield going around social media this week. It was a clip of him demanding evidence of the racist coverage that Meghan Markle has faced. And essentially, he was then asked, well, if you're a journalist, wouldn't you have done your research on this? It's not up to people of colour to essentially be providing all this evidence when it's there. Do we think that this is a wider issue of journalists and presenters not being well equipped enough to talk about racism and let's talk about why that is one of the major problems is just the entitlement of white people which i find quite fascinating because i'm mixed race but white passing and even in like you know as someone who is mixed race i'm like actually you know i, I do realize I've, I've had a different experience um from you know people of color who are more to be blunt who you know who look more like um people of color so that's something i then really talk about so then to see white people to be like hi I have opinions on this. Um, I, I find entirely baffling. And I'm not entirely sure how you change that culture, apart from, again, making the media more diverse and having more voices and more people being able to be that actually, you know, this is not even getting commissioned or this is not even getting past the pitching meeting. Yeah, agreed. Like, journalism is so white. And I feel like I, I'm not, I don't work in any newsrooms or anything. Everything I do is like freelance and I work alongside that. But from the things that I've done, from like even the press junkets I've done this week, like, 
Every single journalist, apart from the ones brought by the agency that specialise in black and brown journalists, like everyone was white. And it was just so crazy how even on those levels about a film, I went to, I went to cover a film that was about like um, race and the criminal justice system. And it's like, why are there no other like black or brown journalists here today? We're completely iced out. Then the only time they do care about us is when it comes to race. And because every conversation is framed as a debate, my identity then becomes a debate and nobody tells anybody otherwise. And I feel like, for example, I, I know that when it comes to issues like this there are a few kind of black women black and brown women who may go on like channel five because i know that the lead presenter there is a black woman and so you know it's going to be an inviting space where we can kind of discuss the nuances and we're not aiming to like dismantle like years and years of white supremacy we're going to talk about the very like real experiences that we've been through but then when you go on different programs where it's white hosts you have to it's about like where the receipts where's the evidence prove this thing is racist and in like that's how racism works right like your your experiences are really trivialized and so you feel like oh maybe there's nothing wrong anyway but then if you look at the state in general look at all of the black and black people who are caribbean who were made like stateless basically lost their citizenship sent back to countries that they'd never been to in their lives and the way this country treats black people like i don't need to come and spell out racism to you but that's what you're going to make me do but because i didn't face racial abuse on my way to the studio this morning it doesn't mean that the racism doesn't exist and i feel like those debates never really give space for us to have those real conversations. And it's really annoying as well because like this is racism at a, an extremely kind of high level, if, if I want to call it that, when we're talking about the things that are faced by the royal family. But there are intricacies and there are things and there are policies that are racist that are affecting people every single day that nobody even wants to care about. So that's how I know none of these discussions are genuine. Do you think we'll ever be able to have those discussions on national television? I feel like it depends on on what it looks like. Things like documentaries, things like um, short series, ways that we can really get into into like I guess the crux of the issues a bit more and explain things. Like one thing, especially during the election, that we notice is that there's a huge gap when it comes to political education in this country that a lot of people just don't understand processes and the ways things work so if you're going to try and tell these people who don't really have much political education anyway or political understanding about a whole system of racism that infiltrates all of their institutions they're going to think that you're lying because it doesn't make any sense to them it doesn't add up and so i feel like a lot of work needs to be done when it like in public discourse around like politics and identity anyway for us to even get into conversations about racism like we're just not at a stage in a in our country in our society where we can have a conversation about racism because it's we're still debating does it even exist as opposed to what are the ways that it manifests and what can we do differently and how are our governments our institutions our judicial systems perpetuating racism so it's like it feels it feels like a a pointless conversation and it feels like there's nothing we can do but there are things we can do but it starts at such a molecular level like it has to be about our education system because we're going to be shouting into the wind and there's no way that i can dismantle white supremacy shouting at Piers Morgan. It's not going to happen. Do you think diversifying the media is the is the first step that everyone should take? I don't know, you know, because if even if we look at the stuff that happened with Naga Manchetti and when she said Donald Trump is racist and she was like, you know, within an inch of like losing her job or getting in trouble for it, like even if you have black and brown people in those spaces, like in those spaces, if the whole institution you're operating in is racist and doesn't allow you to do what you want to do and make the changes you want to make, there's no point. And then all skin folk ain't kin folk. Do you know what I mean? There may be black people in those spaces. Look at Candace Owens. Like look at 
Dominique Samuels. Bro, like, there are people out here who are also black but do perpetuate really harmful myths, stereotypes, like, racist policies, all that kind of jazz. So it's like, that's why I think, like, that whole education thing is such a, it's such a, there needs to be a, a public education about politics and racism so we can, like, have conversations and it don't feel like debates. We're just going to play a clip here that happened on Thursday night. Can I, just, I can't I, help what I am. I was born like this. It's an immutable so you, characteristic. So, so to call me a white privileged male is to be racist. You're being racist. You cannot dismiss. Okay, okay. I just, I'll just, I'm not taking a view either way. I'll just add in that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, also took the view that it wasn't racism. I'm not making a, a judgment on that either way. What do you think about impartiality when covering topics like this? Well, I think impartiality has become quite a loaded term um in the media and in politics for like especially over the past few years but i i do think that one of the issues and again like, to kind of come back to the idea of diversity in the media and diversity in newsrooms is that if you do have sort of like you know 98% white people in a newsroom or, like in any room and then so like 2% uh, people of color the view of the white people on a certain issue will by default become the default basically and so anyone else having a different view will be seen as them having a specific opinion as opposed to just them having one opinion among many others the same way that white people do so I think that once you bring in more people you're able to say okay we do have different points of view on this it doesn't mean that one is the kind of correct impartial truth and the other one is you know an interested party with a view um, and in the end that, that really I don't think that can change until you basically get people and that means as well I think people at all levels because I think quite a, a lot of you know Media places will, you know, will say stuff like, oh, but, you know, we've now got X amount of, you know, women and women of colour, people of colour on screen, which is good. But also if all the producers and all the editors and everyone else is a white man, actually, that the people recording, the people commissioning, etc., your stuff is not going to change that much. Just to add to that, it's also all going to be seen through a white gaze. Um, And I also feel like no one is impartial. Like, I feel like, particularly during the election, there was that whole thing about impartiality of, like, BBC journalists and blah, 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 blah. But I genuinely don't believe that anybody is impartial. I feel like impartiality is a, it's like, it's a nice thing to believe that we are, but nobody is. And you can see it in reporting. You can see it in co- in coverage. And just because people aren't explicitly stating their views, it doesn't mean that they're implicitly, like, embedding it in the things that they do and in the way that they run newsrooms and in the way that they foster a culture in the companies that they work for. So I feel like it's never something that you're ever truly going to es- escape but I think there's this whole thing with like black and brown journalists that when it comes to issues to do with racism or when it comes to issues that affect their communities we're unable to report on these things impartially or we're we're unable to have an an opinion on it that doesn't like take into consideration all the facts because of who we are and because of our identity and I think that's also partly why we only ever get invited to talk about race and racism whereas like I want to talk about like the new fitness trend. I want to talk about Love Island. I want to talk about any crazy stuff happening in the media. One an article that's been written that's gone viral. Do you know what I mean? I have an, I have opinions on all of these things, but the only thing that I get rung up about at seven a.m. is do you want to debate racism with this presenter on this on this um, radio show? And I don't. It's also because it feels like we're not allowed to have our own narratives. We have to either say what people want us to say, or we can't have those conversations at all. And it's not really fair. And I think it links up to the problem of tokenism as well. Like if you've got a panel of, say, like five white people and one person of colour, it can be like, you know, and you turn around and say, and you, you know, the arbiter of what is racist or not, what do you think? So you're kind of, you know, anyone invited in that position is by default made to represent, you know, all of the people who are not white in Britain, for example, well, like which Patel. is not how it works. You know, exactly. And so how, you know, you can't expect that from anyone. And also 
it's mad to think that all people of color have the exactly the same opinions on all issues about race. Like that, that that's also, not how term, it works. People of color, babe. Mm. Like you're again homogenizing these wide experiences into this one experience, and there's just no way that a woman like Priti Patel, who is an Asian woman, can ever speak for black women in this country mm. for anyone because what's that facts. because she hasn't had those lived experiences we also forget about like anti-blackness in brown communities and Mm. how much i guess pain and violence has been inflicted on black people from brown people not only in the uk but in places like trinidad and do you know what i mean like these these are things that run incredibly deep so to have her being like this isn't racist sis nobody asked for your opinion no one asked you to be born i don't really care about what you have to say about anything i'm not interested in it and like and it's things like that though that people then use well pretty patel said it's not racist so how can it possibly be racist how can you argue with pretty patel like look at who she is and this this esteemed figure blah 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 you're not allowed to argue against her and it's just it's a it's a one of the ways in which white people silence a lot of black and brown people's experiences or the things that they say about racism because if one other brown person agreed with them then you must not be right or you must have something wrong with you that's also why the conservatives made her the home secretary because yeah. people will say oh well, her policies might be racist and they'll they'll turn around and say she can't be racist she's brown exactly representation politics is like it's going to be our downfall one day since you mentioned it um we can actually now talk about love island after a lot of controversy new host laura whitmore has replaced carolyn flack because she's been charged with assault and dropped off the show it looks like love island is going to be on twice a year now what do we make of that is that too much do you know what? I'm not going to lie. A winter love island is a good idea because when it's dark outside, it's cold, it's raining. During the winter time, I'm going to be in my house. I'm going to be watching Love Island. So they were very smart with that. I feel like maybe this will impact the summer one a bit and maybe people will get tired of it as they do the same thing with like X Factor, with I'm a Celebrity, Big Brother. Like when they start to ramp up the amount of times they have these shows on, people just suddenly get tired of it and drop off. But at the moment, I'm feeling like people are still riding this Love Island train and because it's winter and none of us want to be out of our houses past like 9pm, we're all going to be home to watch it. So I think it could be good, but don't harm me to this. Marie, do you watch Love Island? No, so that was the thing. I think I, I'm the one person left in Britain who doesn't watch it um, and has never watched it. But it very much went from a thing of like, you know, I, I was broadly aware of this thing that existed and I never watched it, but it didn't have any impact on my life, to one, I think it wasn't last summer, the summer before that. Well, I swear that I just blinked and then it was a friend's birthday in the pub. Um, and it was all like, it's a friend who works in politics. It was all like the nerdiest of the nerds. Um, literally everyone was talking about Love Island. And I was like, oh, Okay, and since then it's just like ramped up and up. And actually, my favorite uh, nerdy fact on that is that a group of Labour MPs have a WhatsApp group dedicated to Love Island. Part of me feels like it's now like a statement. I really did not mean it as such. Like when I didn't watch it, it's just that I never got round to it. But now I'm like, I feel like I've got to hold my ground. <laughs> it's just it's too late now. But it's fine. I'll just hold my ground twice a year now. Viewers have voiced their concerns over a contestant who they feel has been possessive. Do we think that this show? fosters an environment where people become really toxic. Of course, Shantae, we're talking about Sophie and Connor. Yeah, so I feel like 
on Love Island, I mean, that particular relationship and just in general, there are displays of like what can be seen as toxic relationships. But I think what's really good is that the like the commentary around the stuff that happens um, tends to be really helpful and really insightful. And then I feel like it was BBC, like BBC Bite Size. They did like a kind of series of videos with other Love Islanders about like, I guess, Love Island and about relationships and all that kind of stuff. So as much as I don't I don't think it promotes any sort of unhealthy relationship, it does showcase it, but it's been used as um, content for wider conversations about what you do and you don't accept in relationships. And I think that's why it's kind of like done so well. So maybe it's a good thing, right? We're having a lot of these really important discussions of what's healthy and what isn't healthy in relationships. Teenage girls, like a lot of the way, um, you know, you learn what's okay and what's not okay is basically by talking to your mates and being like, oh, actually, you know, like, I don't know, that guy did that. It's like, oh, that feels weird. That guy also did that to me, etc. Gaslighting being quite a big example of that, I think, of, you know, the entire thing is that the other person is trying to make you feel like you're going mad. So being able to see that behavior on telly and be like, this is what I went through. Like, you know, it was not just me. I was not just going mad. It's clearly a thing. It's probably good. Let's talk about the twins. This is the first season that has um, twins in it. Now, the way they've been portrayed has been really weird. I found it quite weird. They've been really sexualized. What do you think? So I've not watched it, but literally the only thing I've seen so far, like I'm aware of so far of this season of Love Island is the horny twins. Um, just from people discussing it and being like, it is quite weird. They're siblings. So I've not like, you know, keeping in mind that I've not watched it, but I'm like... I do not want to know what they've made those twins do. Um, but 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 I feel like you know that's clearly part of a wider thing that to be fair to Love Island, like that's not new in any in any way. But maybe that would be worth actually like a wider discussion as well of like if women are twins, why do we expect them to be horny? <laughs> mm. It is really weird, like watching it unfold and but the thing is they they do it to each other each other, like they they know it's a stereotype and they play off it. The show is also very controversial because, sadly, two previous contestants have died by suicide. Love Island has been criticised for its production, editing and the help it offers to contestants before, during and after the villa. Do you think the show could ever be completely ethical and entertaining at the same time? I do think that's been a problem for a really long time, so this is not a reference I think anyone listening will get. But um, the first ever reality TV show in France was called Loft Story uh, from, like, 2001 or something like the year 2000 but anyway and like and it was quite famous the woman like the young woman who won Loana ended up and like thank god like she made it but like had the most horrible life for 10 years of like you know so like drug addiction suicide attempts etc um and clearly so you know I think that that kind of showed that um she's written an autobiography since like it, it does show that that's always been a problem I think because essentially you're just a normal random person who goes on telly for a bit but also intellectually I think it's quite hard to realize that you're getting famous as you're just doing a thing in a villa and you know whatever the setting is and then you come out and suddenly you're like extremely famous and especially I think social media has made that worse really strong aftercare after any sort of like tv um reality tv show should be like should just be a given the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee did an inquiry into reality TV in general. Somebody who was on the Jeremy Kyle show committed suicide after he failed a lie detector test. Um, even though lie detector tests are a bunch of waffle, we all know that. But it basically, you know, ruined his life, ruined his family, and he ended up killing himself. Then they started this inquiry. Part of the inquiry was Love Island. And they did speak to Islanders to be like, what was your experience like on the show and after the show and all that jazz? Um, and it's a mixture of things because there's they kind of said, you know, before you go on the show, you have 
have like a psychiatric test. Um, and then after the show as well, they get you to like speak to people to see how you're doing. But I don't think that care is very thorough. And as soon as you become irrelevant because the next set of Love Islanders have, have started, then that care, like, where does it go? It just it doesn't exist anymore. Following the deaths of those contestants, Love Island have reviewed the way they provide care for the contestants while they're in the villa and after as well. So it is important to note that they are trying and they are doing things. But I guess the wider question is, you know, what what is it that we find entertaining on Love Island? You know, is it people getting um, basically pied on national television? It's a lot of the time we're laughing at quite traumatic things. Mm. Um, and again, this is the wider conversation of, you know, the failure of X Factor. You know, for, for ages, the entire country was laughing at all these funny acts. And then you realise that it wasn't funny at all. And a lot of these people were just played by the producers. Someone, I think, wrote quite a good piece a while back on how, in a way that, because I think it happened so subtly and so slowly, we've not really noticed it, but actually television and kind of popular culture in general has become less mean. And there was kind of a peak of, yeah, 10, 15 years ago, where actually so much of what we call entertainment was just really mean and just yeah. really horrible. And I think, you know, in stuff that you wouldn't see anymore now. But but I guess, yeah, just as a broader point, maybe it's actually cause for a bit of optimism of thinking that actually, you know, we are having this conversation now, clearly in a way that we were not having five years ago, 10 years ago. I think, you know, we definitely, around the time of Big Brother, as far as I can remember, you know, no one was talking about, you know, what's going to happen to the poor people who leave that house and, you know, how is their mental health? Like, mm. no one would ask that at the time. So, you know, at least we're talking about it. So maybe it's a step in the right direction. Thank you both for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Shante, where can we find you on social media? On Instagram and Twitter, I am Shante J. That is C-H-A-N-T-A-Y-Y-J-A-Y-Y. And Marie? I am at Young Bulgarian on Twitter, where I spend most of my days, um, and also on Instagram, but I'm quite boring on Instagram. Thank you. In other news this week, same-sex marriage has been legalised in Northern Ireland. Cynthia Erivo refuses to perform at the BAFTAs due to the lack of diversity. A collector has paid £1 million for a rare coin depicting Edward VIII. Eminem has been criticised for a lyric in his latest song, in which he mentions the terrorist attack at the Ariana Grande concert. Number 10 has said there will be no automatic deportation for EU citizens. Billie Eilish has been confirmed to do James Bond's No Time to Die theme song. And Betty White has celebrated her 98th birthday. This has been Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag YourBroccoliWeekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and all your favorite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.